as you convict hearts and change lives, Lord, for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. Well, good morning. Welcome to City Reach. If you're just visiting with us or new to our church, and welcome. My name is Timon. I'm the senior pastor here. And last week we began a new series as we've journeyed through the Gospel of John called The Servant Revolution. And we've been in John for some time, and we've come to John chapter 13. So open up your Bible, or if there's Bibles in front of you, open that up to John chapter 13. And uh, as I said, we're doing this series through the Gospel of John, and we've come to John 13, and I've entitled this section, The Servant Revolution. Uh, Throughout the history of the world, there have been moments where there have been these turning points revolutionary moments where things have changed, where things have been different from that point on. Uh, And when Jesus came to earth, he brought a revolution. He said himself, "I, I haven't come to be served, but I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He came to bring about a change in people's lives. And last week we saw that the first part of Joining Jesus in his servant revolution is to have your feet washed by Jesus. To become a follower of Jesus means you have to have your feet washed by Jesus, admit you're a sinner and you need his cleansing grace. But then you join him in the ministry of washing others' feet. Jesus, at the Last Supper, he got down, took a towel, poured some water, and he washed his disciples' feet. And even though there's a number of levels of significance in washing feet, Basically, it just means, and it's an act of love where we wash the feet of other people around us. We see their needs and we seek to meet those needs. And so I was just wondering, it would be great to have testimony time this morning as to how Jesus prompted you this week to wash feet. Whose feet did the Spirit prompt you to wash this week as you went out and lived your life for Jesus? Well, also... As we come into John 13, we also see that um, Jesus also brought a revolution, not only that we should wash each other's feet, but also in the way that we should respond or treat our enemies. You know, in Jesus' great magnum opus, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these amazing words. He said, you have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, as I said those words, and as I look at your expressions this morning, I realize that many of you for years, that that doesn't sound all that shocking. That doesn't sound all that revolutionary because most of us have grown up with those words. And so they sound very familiar to us. But to people of the first century, these were revolutionary words. Love your enemies. The Roman war machine was just massive at the time and they would obliterate their enemies. And even God's people Israel, even though God had taught the nation of Israel that they were to love their neighbours so that they were to love the people in their community, when it came to their, when it came to their enemies, it might have seemed to be a different story. We read this in Deuteronomy 7, and this is Moses speaking. He's speaking to um, the nation of Israel. He says, When 
The Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. God had commanded Israel to go into Canaan and take possession of the, the land of Canaan. And he clears away many nations before you. And then he lists off all the nations that he's going to clear away. Verse 2, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Notice that. You are to kill them. Devote them to complete destruction. Now, how do you explain these words of God to the nation of Israel? Has a non-Christian ever asked you about this? About this, how do you explain as a Christian this commandment of God to, to go into Canaan and wipe out all the nations? Well, the answer to it is that part of God's um, dealings with the nation of Israel is that God was using the nation of Israel as his instrument of justice, as his instrument of judgment. God had been patient with these nations in Canaan for 400 years, and they were wicked nations. They offered their kids in child sacrifice. And so God was using the nation of Israel as his instrument of judgment, as his instrument of justice. You know, God is holy. And because he is loving, he can't let sin go on unpunished without bringing justice. And so he was using the nation of Israel as an instrument of his judgment, as an instrument of his justice. But the sinful hearts of people being what it was, by the time of Jesus, therefore people interpreted these passages like this to mean that God must say that he wants us to love our neighbours, but he wants us to hate our enemies. That's just not true. And Jesus, as I said, he came to bring a revolution. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to love your enemies. You see, the church is not Israel. The church is not meant to take up the sword against her enemies. Uh, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so as a church, we are not supposed to take up the sword against our enemies and seek to take back the land for God or something like that. Whenever the church, in the history of the church, has taken up the sword against Against, against people, it has had disastrous results. The church is meant to be a community of people who pray for their enemies, who love their enemies, who seek to share the gospel with people so that they can come to Christ. Jim Simbala, he writes this. He says, Muslims, Hindus, and other who, others who oppose Christianity should not be considered enemies. In fact, they are part of the mission field that God has placed before us as we try to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we are taught to pray for the enemies of Christianity because they can become apostles the way Saul of Tarsus did. So let's have a gut check this morning. Do you love your enemies? What about those people who you see on television or maybe you see them on social media and they post things that just offend you and offend your moral sensibilities? What goes off in your heart when that happens? Do you feel like rising up in retaliation, taking up the sword? Maybe not literally, but maybe figuratively. You want to get on the keyboard and write something on Facebook and really, ah, yeah, that will show you some sort of comment in, in response. You know, my friends, we're entering into a time in our culture where we are going to have to learn 
like never before these words of Jesus. How to love our enemies. How to pray for those who persecute us. Because we're going to find ourselves increasingly marginalized as Christians and we're going to have to learn, learn the heart of Jesus behind this. But I have to be honest to you, (laughs) I find it sort of relatively easy to love my enemies when they're like ISIS. Like I can pray for ISIS, this sort of group over there in another part of the world that doesn't really affect my life. But what about the people who are in my life? What about those people who oppose me, who make my life difficult? Well, this is where Jesus in John 13, he didn't just teach about loving your enemies. He modeled loving his enemies. In John 13, at the Last Supper, we see Jesus loving Judas right to the end. And it is so beautiful and so life transforming if you see how Jesus loved Judas, his betrayer. And I just look out at a sea of people here this morning and I think there's probably some people here and you have been betrayed horribly. Some people here have been betrayed by their parents horribly. Some people here have been betrayed and treated horribly by others. And you don't want to call that other person your enemy. But when you think about them, All these feelings of rage and vengeance fill your heart. How do you love someone like that? Where does the sort of supernatural love come from to love that enemy? Well, Jesus and Judas. Let's have a look at Jesus and Judas. You know, this week, as I was preparing, I I read over every passage in the New Testament about Judas. I just looked up a concordance and looked up all of the references to Judas. And it's interesting, there's not much mentioned early on in the Gospels about Judas. Judas was just one of the 12 who was chosen by Jesus to be with Jesus. But somewhere along the, on the way, it was revealed to Jesus that Judas would in fact betray him. And this happens in John 6, right at the end of John 6. Uh, Jesus says to the twelve, he says, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And John says that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So Jesus knew, uh, uh, and as I said, he might have known earlier, but at least at this point, he knew that Judas would betray him, and that was about six months before the cross. Well, the next episode that we see with Judas is actually in John 12, six days before the cross. And they're at Mary and Martha's house, and Mary takes the expensive ointment, and she washes Jesus' feet with that ointment. And Judas, he pipes up and he says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He sounds, sounds very good, doesn't it, Judas? You know, he's caring about the poor. But actually, John tells us that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So it seems that Judas was consumed with the love of money. You know, Judas would have been there when Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other, or you will despise one and you'll be devoted to the other. And he said, you cannot serve God 
and money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so it seems that love for money was an idol in Judas's heart. And so when Satan came to him and tempted him to sell Jesus into the hands of his enemies, the chief priests, he took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Now, John doesn't give us the detail. He just says in verse 2 of chapter 13 that Satan had filled his heart. But Matthew says in Matthew 26, verse 14, that one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and says, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver were about five weeks of an average person's wage. So Judas had come to the Last Supper, already having been tempted by Satan, already having betrayed Jesus into the hands of the chief priests, probably with the blood money, the 30 pieces of silver on his person. And Jesus knew he was going to betray him. But how did Jesus love his enemy? How did Jesus love Judas? Well, firstly, Jesus continued to demonstrate love and service to Judas. You know, as we saw last week, Jesus not only washed the feet of the other disciples, he washed the feet of Judas. Now, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19, he says, Beloved, that's all of you. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, You are loved. <laughs> you are a beloved. <laughs> beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, the revolution that Jesus sought to bring was one where we as his followers don't rise up in retaliation. But when our enemy is hungry, we feed him. When he is thirsty, we give them something to drink. Now, often we don't get the full force of what Paul is saying here, but to feed someone and give them something to drink was to offer them fellowship. It would be like inviting your enemy along to the reception of one of your children's weddings. That's what it's like. And the expression, heap burning coals on his head, doesn't mean what I think we think it means. When I first read that expression, by doing good, you will heap burning coals on their heads, I thought, beauty. What this means is, is that I, if I do good to someone who is my enemy, then it will make them feel really bad. I'll get back at them. You know, a little bit like, have you heard that expression? The best revenge is living well. Have you heard that expression? That if your ex treats you bad, then what you need to do is you need to lose weight and get a new wardrobe. And if you look really cool, then that will make them feel really bad. That's not what this expression means. This expression is an, it comes from an Egyptian practice of carrying a pan of coals on your head. And that was a sign of contrition. So the purpose of doing good to our enemy is so that their conscience will start to work. As Jesus got down and washed the feet of Judas, he was hoping that Judas's conscience would start to burn within him. And he would start to think, how can I do this to one so great? But also we see that Jesus loved Judas by giving Judas every opportunity to repent. 
You know, all throughout the night, we see Jesus giving Judas every opportunity to repent, even though he knew what Judas would do, and even though it was predicted in Scripture, he still gives him every opportunity to turn back. Uh, first, in, uh, first, it was very subtle after Jesus and Peter had their interaction, as we looked at last week. Uh, Jesus said to Peter in verse 10, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean but not every one of you. I think as Jesus said these words, he was looking directly at Judas. You are clean, but not every one of you. Hint, hint. You're not clean, Judas. You need to come to me and have a bath. But then in verse 19, uh, verse, um, uh, verse 17, he says it more directly. He says, if you know these things, he's talking about foot washing, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's saying, guys, not all of you are blessed. And he quotes here from Psalm 41 verse 6, which is a Psalm of David, where David is speaking of his betrayer Ahithophel. And it's like Jesus is saying, there is an Ahithophel in our midst, guys, a betrayer. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus was not only giving Judas an opportunity to repent, but he was preparing his disciples so that after the betrayal, they would recognize the authority of Jesus, that Jesus was always in control. He knew what was going on, that their faith in him wouldn't be rocked. But I, 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 this week, I sought to put myself in Judas's place. Can you imagine being Judas? And Jesus says to you, you are clean, but not every one of you. Can you imagine being Judas? And Jesus says, and you've got the, you've got the blood money in your pocket. And Jesus says, he who has eaten my bread will raise his heel against me. I would like to think at that moment, I would have fallen down before Jesus and said, Jesus, it's me. I'm the betrayer. Forgive me, Jesus. I betrayed you into the hands of the chief priest. I'm so sorry, Jesus. Here's the money. I'd like to think that was me. But such is the deceitfulness of sin. But if you keep on giving into sin and giving into sin and giving into sin, it can harden your heart to the point where the word no longer pierces. Chuck Swindoll once said, sin will take you further than you want it to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me say that again. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than what you want to pay. You know, if you had have asked Judas, I bet three years earlier, when he was first chosen by Jesus, if you had have said, Judas, do you realize in three years' time you're going to betray Jesus with a kiss? Judas would have said, there's no way that would happen. But that's where he ended up. In fact, by the end of this passage, it's going to say that Satan enters into Judas. Well, that's shocking, isn't it? Now, for true believers, Satan cannot take possession of true believers, but make no mistake, we have a thief. The Satan is a thief, and he seeks 
to kill, he seeks to rob, he seeks to destroy. And he's out to rob you of your peace, he's out to rob you of your joy, he's out to rob you of your victory. And so many people, I met someone yesterday, used to go to this church 10 years ago when I came here, and they've been robbed of everything. Because they didn't listen to the voice of Jesus. They hardened their heart to the voice of Jesus. But even though Jesus knew this would happen, that he would betray him, his heart still broke for Judas. In verse 21 we read, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now it's interesting that the word troubled there is the same word used in chapter 11 when Jesus was at the graveside of Lazarus and it's used in chapter 12 where Jesus speaks about how his spirit is troubled as he thinks about going to the cross. So Jesus' heart broke for his enemy, Judas. Does your heart break for your enemies? Does your heart break for those people who come against you? Or do we just put them in a category over there and we just think of them in a certain way rather than break for them? Oh Lord, my heart breaks for them. Now in verse 22, we read that his disciples, when they heard these words, they looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, to really understand what's going on in this scene, you need to sort of understand, I think, a little bit of the context of, of the Last Supper. Now, when most of us think about the Last Supper, most of us have a picture in our minds that comes from Leonardo da Vinci. Let me just show you. Oh, it's right here. Leonardo da Vinci. Look at this class. All right, so this is like, when I think of the Last Supper, this is the picture that comes to my mind. Now, what do you notice about this picture from Leonardo da Vinci? What are some of the things, what are some of the observations that you have about this picture? Okay, so like, all of the disciples are pretty much white, right? That's not how Middle Eastern men would have looked. Um, it also looks very much like a Mediterranean villa from the Middle Ages. Now, here is actually what it would have probably more likely looked like. All right? So the Last Supper, they would have had a low table and the disciples would have leaned in with their heads and their feet would have been facing outwards. And you notice on this end here, you have three people at the head of the table and it would have been... Um, the top one would have been John, then Jesus, and then get this, who's on the left hand of Jesus? Judas. Jesus loved Judas by giving him the place of privilege at the Last Supper. Think about your enemies. When I think about my enemies, I don't want to have anything to do with them. Jesus gives him the place of privilege at the Last Supper. Now, uh, in verse 23, we are told, when one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Just go back to the picture for a second. You'll see that up the top is John, and, he's, and because he was on Jesus' right side, he could lean into Jesus. He could lean into his breast, and he could talk to Jesus just quietly and privately. 
Um, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, who would betray him. So that disciple, John himself, leaning back against Jesus, leaning into the breast of Jesus, such a beautiful picture, said, Lord, whispered, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now at that time, to give a morsel of bread to someone was a symbol of fellowship. It was a symbol of friendship. It's as if Jesus is saying to Judas, Judas, accept my friendship. Accept my restoration, Judas. Here is my heart. Come back to me. It might be that Jesus is saying that to you today. He's saying, come back to me. I don't care what you've done. Come back to me. Receive my forgiveness. I'll wash your feet. You can come back and have friendship and fellowship with me. Well, Kent Hughes writes, at that moment, an immortal soul committed suicide. Now, Judas was the very definition of a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who appears one way on the outside, but is different on the inside. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus said this, um, Judas answered by saying, is it I, Rabbi? He just pretended that nothing was up. And Jesus answered, you have said so. And so John tells us in verse 27 that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. You know, Jesus loved Judas. I love this because he didn't expose Judas and his sin. Man, my enemies, I want to expose them. I want everyone to know what my enemies have done. But they didn't know until after the cross. And verse 30 ends with these words. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. You know, for Judas, it would never be day again. In a few hours, he would betray Jesus into the hands of the chief priests and the Pharisees with a kiss. He would try to return the blood money, but the religious leaders would not take it. So he purchased a field and he hung himself. As I said, it would only be an eternity of night now for Judas. The moment had passed for him to come back to Jesus. Now, when we think of Judas, we can say, oh, well, that's Judas. Of course, he was a betrayer. He loved money. But do you realize that every single one of us at one time, we were enemies of Jesus? I'm looking out at a whole heap of people who are at one time Judases. I was a Judas. The Bible says that in Ephesians 2, that we were all children of disobedience, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, I love the lyrics of the song, All I Have is Christ by Sovereign Grace. They express this well. Here are the lyrics. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and you led me to the cross. I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. I wonder, have you experienced that revolution within? Where you've come to Jesus and he's washed everything away. You see, Jesus sought to bring a revolution because he loved us while we were his enemies, we can now love our enemies. Where we don't seek retaliation and vengeance, we leave that to God, but we love and serve people who come against us. Where we have hearts of forgiveness, willing to forgive those who offend us because we have been forgiven and our hearts break over the spiritual condition of our enemies. Now you, you might say, well, that's easy for you, Timon, but you don't know what has been done to me. You don't know the atrocities, the wickedness that people have done towards me. How can I forgive? Well, you don't have the power to forgive. But there is one who on the cross all of his enemies, we, we were all of his enemies and we put him there on the cross. And do you know what he cried out on the cross? He cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And even though you don't have the power to forgive, Jesus can come and live within you and he can give you the power to forgive your enemies and transform your life forever. You heard the story of Corey Temboom this morning who was in a Nazi prison camp because her and her family sheltered Jews during the war. Now, you've probably seen the movie Jojo Rabbit. That's a comic take on it. That's nothing in comparison to what happened with Corey Tamboom. She saw her sister and her parents die, her father die in that Nazi prison camp. And when one of the, the Nazi captors came to her and asked her for forgiveness, she just felt like there's no way I could do that. But she asked God for the power. And as she says in that testimony, God's power came upon her and she felt the love of God being shed abroad in her heart. That's what God can do for you. God can free you from that so that you can love your enemies. I don't hold any hope. I've got to tell you guys, I don't hold out any hope for our world at all politically. None. I don't hold up any hope. I love, I, I think we, uh, you know, ScoMo's a good guy. I think he's good. 
But have you seen this past week what's happening in our world with Iran and the US and all of that sort of stuff? The only hope for the world is Jesus. The only hope for our world is the gospel. The only hope is the servant revolution made up of people who go out of this place, radically love their enemies and share this radical message of love. You are an enemy of God. You can be a friend of God. So will you join me and be part of the the servant revolution? Maybe today God is speaking to you and he's calling you to himself. He's offering that morsel of bread. He's saying, will you come and be my friend? Will you come again? Don't run from him any longer. Come back to him. Trust in him. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Let me pray. Lord God, the enemy comes to kill, to steal and destroy. And I just pray over my precious brothers and sisters here this morning. The enemy might have come to kill and to destroy some people here. But Lord God, you if they turn to you, you have way more power and authority and you can take back the ground that the enemy has taken in their lives, Lord. Oh, Lord God, I just pray, Father, in this moment of response, Lord God, that you would be working in hearts, drawing people back to yourself, Lord, transforming people for the glory of Christ. We thank you for our Lord Jesus and how precious he is and how beautiful his example is on that night before he was crucified. His eyes were not on himself, but he was loving the people around him. Even though he was going to go through the massivest trial, he was going to be cut off from you, Father, but he was loving and serving the people around him. Bring a servant revolution into our hearts, Lord God, I pray. Servant revolution, Lord. Lord, we want to be like you. We want to worship you. We want to honor you. Let's stand together. Let's honor and worship Jesus.